but basically a value add property is something you buy for below market value because the property is significantly um, messed up in bad condition for lack of a better word. So you have to go in there and put significant capital expenses into the property to make the property new again, presentable again. So you can get the highest market value rents. And when you get the highest market value rents, you get the highest market value price because rents direct, uh, correlate directly with price. So, um, basically it means you're fixing up the property. So if you buy a value add house, you're fixing up the property, replacing the kitchens, the bathrooms, the flooring, all that stuff. So. Who's this? Oh, you're an entrepreneur. Oh, you're a real estate investor. Oh, you're trying to learn from those who did it. Well, come into the lab then. Put your white coat on, gloves on, notepad, and let's build, y'all. Experiment Nation! What is going on? Ruben here, your host, and I'm very excited to have this gentleman come into the lab with us today because we were just talking offline and I love me some vertical integration. Uh, and, and for those of you who don't know, Vertical integration is when you are solving not only your own problem, but you also have a business that is able to serve others, solve the same problem. Reason I love it is you're able to learn from your own experiments, as I call them, and learn from those of your clients and as well have insight into the marketplace. So I'm very happy to have this gentleman come and step into the lab and show us the other side of the world on the multifamily side, owning a brokerage. Uh, being able to serve clients as well, and being able to still source his own deals for him and his partners. Without further ado, welcome Jason Lee to the lab. How's it going, brother? Ruben, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Appreciate it. Abs absolutely, man. Hey, listen, I was just saying, we were talking about this offline, man. I've been traveling, uh, a lot of airports and stuff. You were asking me why I have this podcast. My gosh, it's, it means to connect with people like you, right? Find out what you're doing. So I always like to ask the question of if I meet you at the airport and, you know, I like the network. So my, my wife always taps me. He's like, stop talking to people. I'm like, I, I just <laughs> want to talk, man. I want to find out what this guy looks interesting. What's up? I'll shake your hand and be like, what's going on, man? I'll sit next to you on the plane and be like, hey, man, what do you, what do, you do for a living? What do you usually open up that, that next line with? <laughs> I love that question. I mean, yeah, if we were, you know, sitting on the plane together, we're both bored. One is spark conversation. You asked me that question. Probably give you a short answer. I'm not super talkative, but I'm more of a listener myself. I like learning about other people. Uh, I am a networker too, but um, if you ask me that question, I would just say, you know, uh, I live in San Diego and I own a commercial real estate brokerage. We've got 11 agents and um, we've done, you know, a good number of transactions. We've done about 150 in the last two years. And then we got, um, the other side of my business where I also, you know, uh, syndicate and raise money for our development plays here in San Diego. So I kind of have two businesses, but, uh, both in the real estate world. So that'd be my quick and easy answer for you. That's, that's very interesting. So in short, you're a real estate investor and you specialize in the multifamily, right? Yep. Specialize in multifamily. Um, we sell a little bit of like other commercial asset classes. Like I've sold some retail buildings, some Jack in the boxes, Starbucks, and, uh, some, um, some industrial properties, but yeah, mostly like, like 95% multifamily. Got it. Now LinkedIn tells me, and the reason I say LinkedIn, I'm going to source LinkedIn because we know as investors, we're constantly growing our portfolio. 
right? Like, you know, I told you I was on the contract for one right now. So LinkedIn tells me, right, that uh, you have about 50 million assets under your portfolio. Is that, is that current? Is that, has that changed? Is that still the case when it comes to your portfolio? You know, I'd say it's pretty close. We've sold some stuff and we bought some stuff. So I'd say it's Mm -hmm. pretty, pretty similar. That's pretty um, updated. So yeah, yeah, it's up to par. So let's talk about that. Uh, Currently, when someone would ask me, am I, you know, what kind of investment I like to buy and hold? You obviously have a very different, uh, I shouldn't say very different. You're an investor, but it sounds like you've liquidated some as well. Can you give us a little insight as to why and when are these value adds with an exit strategy with partners? What's the play there with the exit? Yeah. So my whole thing is I believe in maximizing your return potential. And I ran the numbers because the best ways to exit a property is to the top two ways is to buy a property, fix it up, you know, add a lot of value, um, you know, build that sweat equity and then do a cash out refinance or, do a 1031 exchange, defer capital gains, and trade up into a larger asset. So I help clients 1031 all the time. That's like what our brokerage specializes in. We help clients trade up and move into bigger complexes. Mm. And since I know that game, I kind of just like ran the numbers. Like, would I be growing my wealth faster if I just kept doing refinances or if I kept exchanging? And um, the wealthiest investors that I've worked with, um, you know, some you know, hundred million to billion dollar range investors, they all uh, traded up from smaller buildings into larger assets. So that was my plan. So I only sell if I own like a small asset, like a two to six unit property, and I'll go out and buy or combine funds with another property and buy like a a 20 unit building or a 16 unit building. So um, I'm not playing in the hundred unit space because I am in San Diego, a hundred unit building in San Diego is like, you know, um, like fit like 40 to 50 million dollars so i can't play in that space yet but um yeah so that's my main exit strategy but we also do ground up development we started just doing value add fixing properties up but as you may know um tenant laws in california are getting stricter and stricter but san diego is like the last city where you can still do a value add plan and you know move tenants out and do your thing but it's going in the wrong direction but the thing that's great about California or about San Diego, Southern California, is that we're landlocked. So we have the best weather in the country in San Diego, but we've got the coast to the le- to the to the west. We've got the, the desert to the east where the weather sucks. Nothing's out there. And then we got the border to the south and we've got a huge army base, Camp Pendleton, uh, north of San Diego. So San Diego is a very small plot of land, but it's a very desirable plot of land. And we're 70,000 units behind on housing. So We've been able to take advantage of the new zoning laws that have changed in San Diego to support higher density apartment buildings. And we've been, um, you know, we have four or five projects in planning right now for multifamily development. Okay. So you said a lot that I want to unpack and I'm always taking notes in the lab because it's, you know, I pay attention when you speak, right? So I want to go back to the trading up for a second Mm -hmm. because trading up, um, I would love for you to, I hear it, but I think it's really important for our listeners to, to, to see it tactically. Right. So let's talk about maybe a case study that you have or what trading up look like and typically trading up, what does that, that time period between the trade up look like, 
is it are you doing value add between the time you're doing trade up or are you actually just streamlining operations increasing your gross operating income like what's happening during that time and how long does it take until you feel that you're ready to trade up and again per property basis i would love to know how you assess the okay it's time or is it even predetermined when you buy the asset you're you already know exactly what you're going to do how long you're going to be in it for and with respect to the right deal then you trade up can you talk to us about like what goes behind the scenes of 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 that timeline the decision and the process yeah i'll give you an example of um a case study that i did i've done multiple so i can just give you one but before i say that i'll go over the rules because there are irs guidelines so mm. A 1031 exchange, um, it's an IRS tax, you know, 1031 tax deferred exchange. What it is, is in the simplest terms, I don't want to confuse your viewers, but you can search it on Google. But in layman's terms, a 1031 exchange is where you can sell a like kind property or sell a property and buy a like kind property. So if you sell an investment property, you can buy another investment property if it's the same price or greater. So the thing, the reason why I say like kind property is because you can't do an exchange into a primary home. If it's your primary residence, it doesn't qualify as an exchange. You have to pay taxes on the capital gains that you sold the property for. So when you do a 1031 exchange, there's two like really important rules I want you to remember. One is that there's timelines. So after you sell a property, like for example, I sold a fourplex in Chula Vista for uh, 2 million bucks and uh, in san diego and after i sold that property i had 45 days after i closed to identify a property to purchase so i have 45 days to identify three properties and i have to close on at least one but after i identify the three properties i have um six months to close 180 days from the day i closed on the property that i sold so though that's like the most important thing to remember uh is is the time frames and um there's other types of exchanges too that i can go into but just for like to be simple sake that's what it is um for the case study the reason why i like it so much is because you know when you add a lot of value like you said when you add a lot of value to a property right now it takes me anywhere from three to six months to renovate depending on how serious the renovation is and how many permits i have to pull and how many major systems like the roof electrical plumbing that i'm replacing if I'm doing all the major systems, it takes a long time, like six to nine months. But if it's like a quick turn in and out, interior renovations, exterior paint, very fast. But um, now, answer, qu now yeah. question on that, because I, yeah. I want to make this definitely a dialogue. When you do this value add for six to nine months, is it best practice to then be able to show that you've been able to raise rent increase gross operating income for a certain period of time is it like a year is it a couple months or can you go right back to the bank and say hey listen i made these updates but they might say hey show us the rent rolls show us the receipts you might be like well i don't have enough time yet so i want to just be very uh clear for our listeners you know what's that best practice timeline is there a hard rule does it depend from lender to lender how do you justify now the 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 work that you've put in how does that equate into uh what we call value add so it's, it's a two-part question because there's two different kinds of loans in my business there's the residential loans the typical fannie mae freddie mac and then there's the commercial loans when you go five units and above in size and multifamily. so 
when you buy a two to four unit property or a one to four unit property, it's considered a residential loan. And when you, when you, uh, fix up a property and you go to refinance it, to pull your cash out, right. To get your uh, money back that you put into the property, you want to have at least six to 12 months, depending on the lender on the bank, but six to 12 months since you bought the property, um, to go and refinance it. Because if you try to do it like in month three or month four, uh, they'll probably deny you, but like six months, is like the minimum to, you have to own a property to go back and refinance and reappraise it and get a new loan. Um, you know, some banks is typically a year of seasoning. And then for the commercial loans, uh, you know, commercial loans, they they care about the property. So they care about the cash flow. So when a commercial, when you go to refinance a commercial loan, you have to make sure that all your tenants have been in there, you know, fully uh, rented, you have proof of profit and loss statements for at least three months. Some banks are really aggressive and will say like, you know, one or two months is fine, but I typically see at least three to six months of seasoning of like income coming in, showing the lender that, Hey, these tenants are legit. These leases are good. They're all paying rent. Uh, the expenses are here. So we can give you loan dollars based on your cash flow because, um, commercial banks give you loans based on cash flow, not based on just your personal DTI. They care about the property more mm. than the actual borrower. So, uh, so that's, that's, the that. that's very interesting, Jason. So you, basically you're telling me that, you know, I'm just going to put a, this case study that if you were to buy an asset, let's say you buy, I don't know, 20 unit asset, you, uh, let's say it was, I don't know, 65% occupied. You're able to just do your typical, actually, I, I should let you tell me. Why don't you help me build this case study? You buy a 20, 20 unit apartment, it's 65% occupied. What are your typical go-tos? And then I'll help kind of tie in my question to that uh, when you're doing your value add. So again, every deal is different, but just typical. Are you asking me like what kind of loan I'm getting when I buy that property? No, what kind of value add uh, work are you, you putting on that? What does value add mean for someone who's listening to me like, okay, I hear it, but what does that even mean? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a term thrown around a lot in real estate, but basically a value add property is something you buy for below market value because the property is significantly um, messed up in bad condition for lack of a better word. So you have to go in there and put significant capital expenses into the property to make the property new again, presentable again. So you can get the highest market value rents. And when you get the highest market value rents, you get the highest market value price because rents direct, uh, correlate directly with price. So um, basically it means you're fixing up the property. So if you buy a value add house, you're fixing up the property, replacing the kitchens, the bathrooms, the flooring, all that stuff. So is yeah. that typical? That's where I was getting at. Is that typical? Or is there one thing that you should go to? Hey, Ruben, all my, most of my deals, I typically go straight to the floors because floors where the value is at. Then I go to the kitchen. Like what's typical for you as far as when you're tactically value adding is where I was getting at exactly just that. Yeah, well, we care all about the end buyer. So we want to make sure we deliver a product that the buyer that buys the property is going to like in the future. So it, it depends deal by deal. Like if I buy property A and everything is fine, but the interiors are completely messed up, then I'll replace everything inside. I'll replace the flooring, the kitchen, the bathrooms. It's got to have good appeal so that a tenant pays you know the highest rent. I got to put in new finishes new quartz countertops, you know, white shaker cabinets, stainless steel appliances, got to paint it, um, you know, got to put in good fixtures, new ceiling fans, all that kind of stuff. But those 
the items that I just mentioned that I listed, those are what adds a lot of value to your property because those items that the tenants see and touch, that's what they pay the high rent for. But if you buy a property where, you know, the electrical is ruined, the roof is ruined, um, the foundation's messed up, like this is all deferred maintenance. And what deferred maintenance is, is that when you renovate and replace these items, it doesn't add that much value to the property because that's like the bones of the property. The property should have that, you know, in there in order to be operating. So, um, but if any major system is messed up, like if I buy a property and the roof is shot and it's leaking, I have to replace it, but it's not going to add that much value if at all to my property, because when I replace a roof, my rents don't go up. So mm. to answer your question, um, spending money on things that makes your rent go up, your income go up are what adds the most value to your property value. Nice. And is there a term for that? So, cause I'm so glad you went there. You said that's such a good way of, I haven't really heard anyone kind of highlight that. And I love the way you just did that. One is there's, there's, there's levels between, or actually maybe it's me. So you tell me when you say value add, are you talking about specifically things that will increase your cash flow? And where does a deferred maintenance, does that fall into its own bucket? Like when you say value add, are you actually including like fixing a roof or is that for you? Does that just mean specifically cash flow generating, uh, I guess, uh, uh, tasks that if you do them, you know that you'll shoot up the, the, uh, the, the property value. Well, we have our capital expense budget, um, you know, quantified out. Like for example, kitchens have their own light item, roof has their own light item, but when we're buying a property, we always inspect it. We do our inspections with our contractor. We walk it with our subcontractors and we see, you know, what work has to go into it. So we have a budget built before we even remove contingencies and buy a property. Mm -hmm. So, um, we know all our numbers very well before actually closing on the deal. And, um, to answer your question about deferred maintenance, what I mean by that, um, is that if you add value, like let's say you, um, it's kind of a weird add value just means like you're buying a property where you can go in day one and you can take the property from 700 K to a million dollars if you do X, Y, and Z. So that's what value add means yeah. is if I buy this property, I'm going to put in money into it. I'm going to make a profit, get my money back or. Uh, exchange and go into a larger asset or cash out, whatever you yeah. want to do. So, um, so yeah. And that makes sense, Jason. And the really only reason I'm pinpointing it is because I think it's very important for us to realize that like you may need, you know, double pane windows to increase insulation or, or whatever. Right. So that you're not doing as much, but like that intrinsic value doesn't necessarily like, you don't necessarily get to charge more for that. You have to think about the end user of like, oh, okay, yeah, luxury vinyl plank floors is much better than whatever they had before. Like that increased the value. So I think the reason yeah. I was kind of getting granular, it's not so much to be like, why is he focusing so much on value add? Like, I think it's so interesting because when you get granular into the business, you realize that, hey, like we might be spending like 100K on this and that's just because we have to in order to make this a compliant, functional, up to code. But if there's there's no way you can you know just tell the tenant, hey, by the way, like I got you a new roof, so therefore, like you know, it's gonna be three hundred bucks more, like you know. So I think there's there's the difference, and I just wanted to highlight that because I'm sure that you you guys look into that when you're buying an asset that you know that hey, you know, visually or aesthetically, this is gonna be more pleasing, and you'll be able to justify higher rents. But then this is an expense that it's deferred maintenance and we got to do it anyway. And it's, you know, 
it's it is what it is like that's that's the cost of doing business almost right i mean did i summarize that like accurately or is, is i just want to make sure that i brought that point home no you, you did completely um i think that I, I'm really happy that you actually brought that up because, um, and like got so granular because people don't really understand where to spend money when they first start, because there are ways you can waste money and you shouldn't have wasted it. Like for example, if you have a choice to buy, um, luxury vinyl plank flooring and you're in a classy area and you're dealing with a lower, you know, quality demographic, they're not going to care that you have the best flooring in town. But if you're in like the, best part of San Diego or best part of anywhere, Atlanta, and these are all like white collar tenants, they're going to care about good finishes. So you want to spend the money to um, improve your finishes to make sure you get the highest rent possible. But you have to know where you're located, what finish to choose, and you have to understand what actually adds the most amount of value if you have a certain amount of budget. Because most people that buy properties when they first get started, they can't replace everything, even if it needs everything. So you got to pick and choose sometimes like, Hmm, if I leave, like if I leave the bathroom, cause it looks okay, but I just replaced the kitchen. I know that the kitchen has a higher value add potential on my rents. So I'm going to do the kitchen, but not the bathroom yet. I'm gonna get cash flow first from this tenant. And you know, you have to be tenant obsessed when you buy multifamily properties because you know, let me ask you a question, Roman. If you go into a, a unit and it's a two unit property, but one unit has, you know, AC, heating, washer and dryer in unit, you have three parking spaces, you have huge bedrooms, you have luxury vinyl plank flooring, you have a new kitchen, new bathroom, everything is redone to the highest finish possible. And in this unit, it has all that, except it doesn't have AC and heating and no washer and dryer. Which unit are you going to pay more money for? Hey man, I gotta have my AC on, man. It's hot land over here, so <laughs> I ain't playing with that, J Jason. Yeah. Experiment Nation, you've heard the word MTR, midterm rentals, as it is currently a hot topic and hot commodity right now because, again, there has been an increase in short-term rental regulations, and there also has been let's face it, a slowdown in what we were experiencing a couple years back when it comes to bookings. So with that said, short-term rental operators are looking for alternative solutions to tap into the midterm rental space. However, there is a space, there is a sub niche of midterm rental insurance that I'm truly excited about that I want to share with you that the experience that we've had, the tremendous results we've been able to have, and that's the insurance midterm rental space, which is very different than your traditional midterm rentals. When you think of traditionally midterm rentals, you think of travel nurses. There is a space, midterm rental insurance space that we've tapped in where you need to be well connected with insurance and relocation specialists and companies and understand the right type of asset required for you to be able to help these families. What's really important that stands out the most, which you can get in what I'm about to offer you is the understanding where to be found by these insurance companies, how to properly manage your calendar so that your listings are optimized so that they can find you, how to actually gain traction and build a relationship with these relocation insurance companies. I've put together an MTR insurance blueprint. That's double M T triple R insurance blueprint to cover these foundations after we've had success landing very large contracts on single family homes that 
literally 4x what we traditionally make in long-term rentals and also gives us peace of mind because there's less turnover and a hundred percent occupancy because these contracts can start anywhere from 30 days to three months to eight months and range anywhere from again we've landed anywhere from eight thousand to nine thousand dollars a month in per month on a single family home property which our mortgages are typically around the 2400 range which then gives you a large spread of anywhere from four to six k net on just one property and this is why it's very hot right now but people who haven't been in the lab with individuals like myself like jesse vasquez and dr rachel gainsborough and noble crawford don't have the foundations and don't know exactly where to start and therefore this is why i'm giving you guys a blueprint the mtrr insurance blueprint go to the, the website experimentrealestate.com and get yourself a blueprint to completely change or at least have a plan B if you're a short-term rental operator looking to maximize your occupancy and profitability. We'll see you on the other side. Yeah, so 100%. So so I love that tenant focus. And I love that because it's sometimes we, we work in our silos and it's like investor, 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 and you forget who the end client is. Like who at the end is going to be able to pick this property in this zip code in this neighborhood over another, right? So so thank you for that. And by the way, that was a great call out because I think when I think even in, in our space, in the single family space, and we're thinking of value at in the kitchens, kitchen cell, right? I mean, that's that's a big thing. Is there any other one that comes to mind that like typically like if you were tight on budget and you had to spend money and you needed to just make it rain as soon as possible? And what what are some of your go-tos and sweet spots so that we understand how you think? Yeah, honestly, um, the answers might the answer might not be what you expect, but if you put in like all new, like fresh interior coat of paint, like it makes a property look so much better. The unit looks so much better. So I think paint is super cheap and super effective. Wow. So if you have a small budget and you know you can't replace everything, make sure you paint, like repaint the uh, the unit if it has bad paint because if it's old and it's a bad color and it's dull, I promise you, if you put a fresh white coat of paint on there, your units can look so much better and show so much better. But mm. I'd say paint is the most cost effective. And then I'd say like the thing that you can renovate that will give you the most juice um, in rental increase, which means you'll have the highest property value increase. Like you said, it's definitely the kitchens, but I've realized that there's a significant difference in um, renting a unit with no washer and dryer versus a washer and dryer. Like people hate uh, common area laundry. I know I, yeah. I did too when I had it. So I need um, to pull my wife into this podcast a hundred percent. Like yeah. that was like, and I'm like, why do you, and it's crazy. Cause I was the one doing it before. And I'm like, why do you care so much? Cause we came from New York, right? And New York is like, yeah, it's hard to find a washer dryer in unit when you're living there that, that, that was like top on the list. Like a hundred percent. Like I hear you. And it's funny. I just want to echo that. Cause like, you're not, like you're not bullshitting. Like this is this is real. Like my wife was like, this is top of my list. I'm like, oh, that's interesting because I wouldn't, as an investor, if I'm thinking, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that. But when you think about tenant facing, 100, percent I, I I lived it. <laughs> yeah. So and, and if if you're in like a crowded area, like you know downtown metro or something, like parking is also so valuable. Mm. Like if you have just like dead front yard space, you can add like one or two parking spaces. It adds so much value to your property because 
parking is a hot commodity in like, you know, metros and busy streets and um, everyone hates parking on the street. So people will always pay a couple hundred bucks more um, if they have a nice parking spot they can rely on when they come home from work on, you know, 5.30 p.m., 6 p.m. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say, too. And we talk about gross operating income or, even, uh, you know, or I should say net operating income because that's what you're watching. But that adds right to the to the you know, you're able to have a couple hundred bucks a month, you know, for a parking spot. And, you know, depending on how many you have and they're paying that, you know, annually or monthly, I should say. Right. That That's going to add up. Right. Yeah. So. So, okay, so thank you for bringing me here, Jason, because you're, you're helping me build the case study. So now that we have that full understanding of how you think, you got a 20 unit, it's 65% occupied. Uh, with the knowledge that we have, Jason is my partner on this. He told me, and again, not it's case by case. I just want to build a case study here. I'm not saying this is what you do every time, but you come in, add fresh paint, do the kitchen, create a parking lot, etc., and you're telling me, you know, that any, again, depending on the work, guys, it's just a case study. I just want to highlight this because this is how I think based on case studies. Let's say it takes you, what, say three to six months? Takes you three to, eh. yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, um, it, it six depends. months. Let's say six yeah, months. We're right? just months. for the sake of this example, right? Yeah, yeah. It could be cosmetic. <laughs> it could be less. Like, we understand. Yeah. I'm just trying to bring the point home because yeah. this is what I didn't understand until you said it. Uh, I understand as in I didn't, I didn't know about this technicality. In six months, you could go ahead and get those, get a contract. I think co contract, I'm always thinking in my terms, Mr. Rental, get a lease, right? Yeah. You get a lease, you lease those bad boys from 65 occupancy to 97% occupancy, right? And on month number eight, I can go back to the bank and be like, hey, listen, here's what I did. And here are all tw uh, 19 leases. Uh, and yes, they're on the second month, but you can see that they've signed until for out to a, a year. I would like to refinance. Is that kosher? That is, that is kosher. You, you nailed it. Damn. That's what's up. So I didn't realize about the speed, right? I was actually always under the impression that, uh, and again, we understand that this could change from lender to lender, but I was always under the impression that, Hey, like, show me your, uh, what do they call it? Not just rent rolls, but your um, there's a term that they use. Oh my oh, gosh, profit you know, and loss, profit and loss statement. No, not even that. They your twelve, your twelve. Oh, your trailing twelve, oh, trailing twelves. There you go. Yeah. Like, I'm like, you know, I don't know if that's because at the time, you know, when I used to call out of the multifamily, you know, I played in that space for a little while. That was a big one, trailing twelves. Are so are we saying that that was just the best practice, but it doesn't really have to be it. You could even probably be aggressive. And if you're very aggressive, you could be to pretty much be just banging these out. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, hundred percent. And, and some like, it, it all depends on, I think having banking relationships or knowing a mm -hmm. commercial loan broker or a residential loan broker or both is so important because you know, they give you access to many different lenders and every lender is different. Like some mm. banks, will require a year of seasoning. Some banks will require, you know, no, like I, I've, I've done deals where the commercial bank just like needed a rent roll and they're like, yep, that's fine. We're good to go. Um, but like, it, it just depends on the lender because every lender has their pros and cons, right? Some lenders will have really good rates, but really bad leverage. Some lenders will have bad rates, but really good leverage. Some lenders will have, you know, more flexible prepayment penalties. Uh, some lenders will, 
uh, be very conservative, but they'll be very easy to work with. Some lenders are aggressive, but a pain in the ass to work with. So they all have their pros and cons. And you just got to figure out like which two or three banks you mesh with the best that you can like execute every single time with. Yeah. And so when you go into deals, this is going to be my, my, my next kind of transition is. Yeah. I always like to think of the who, not the how. So definitely your lender is your best friend. You got to know which one to pick based with respect to the to the asset class that you're tackling or the deal itself. For you, does it look like two or three, three or four? Like what, it, just so people have an idea, like when you've done over, I mean, a hundred plus units, uh, you know, and, and all the volume of transactions that you've done, what has worked for you uh, as far as, your your rolodex of kind of contacts is it two to three that you typically rotate is it three to five like what does that look like like lenders you mean yeah you know that's, that's a good question it, it really i mean especially now because the interest rate market's so messed up but i i'd say for a long time there we had like one or two banks we relied on it was axos bank and first republic and first republic went down as you probably know that was like the best lender in san diego and um axos bank was a big one but now their rates are way too high so now we're working with some other banks so it has changed but you know i was rolling with like one or two banks for a long time there until uh you know things went things at the fan what happened to your your properties when that happened by the way i'm just curious you know the values in san diego have stayed very steady um they have gone down a little bit but you know like four or five percent but values haven't really decreased that much because there's simply not a lot of motivation here. And then people have a lot of equity, like a lot of properties in San Diego are generational assets. So like people have inherited them. It's like a family property. It's like their gold mine because, you know, they own an asset like a couple blocks from the beach. Why would they ever sell it? So um, there's not a lot of distress here, but there is some, but uh, the big challenge we're facing right now in our market is that there's not a lot of volume. Like there's not a lot of transactions. It's very hard to make a buyer and seller come to an agreement on pricing and terms. So mm. that's like the biggest challenge in our market right now is just lack of volume. It's like a standstill. It's like a standoff between buyers and sellers. Like who's going to lower their price? Who's going to raise their price? You know what I mean? So it's kind of funny. Interesting. And and what I was also asking is like when, when first Republic went down, it's like, what, what happened to you? Cause you're saying that was your lender. Like what happened? Oh, to you Oh God, I got it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, we still have First Republic loans on our properties, but Chase Bank bought them out. So JP oh. Morgan, JP Morgan is now our lender. So Chase Bank is now holding the loans on the properties that we did loans with them. That's interesting. Damn, yeah. that's crazy. Uh, going back to the trading up, because that really interests me. Um, the what? Sorry. The trading up. So oh, trading you talked up. about yeah. trading up. And I know in my case study, I built it up as a refinance, but you specifically said that you realized pretty quickly that, you know, all the big, the big ballers, right? The way they get to the, to, to wealth is by trading up. So let's say instead of that refi, we say, Hey, I want to trade up this asset I built up. Talk to us about what that process looks like. Are you locating the next deal first and then ready to put this deal on for sale are you selling it and then you're doing the 1031 so only have 45 days like what does that trading up process actually look like behind the scenes because we can hear it sounds hot sexy all good 
love it, but I'm sure there's a process behind the scenes that is maybe not like snap of fingers, right? 100%. So it's a great question. Your biggest enemy when you trade up is time, right? Because I, I told you that after you close, you have that 45 day window to identify that property. So time is your biggest enemy when you say, Hey, you know, refinancing doesn't make sense. I don't like the rates that I'm seeing. I don't like the amount of cash out these banks are giving me. So I'm going to sell this property. I don't like this location anyway. So I'm going to sell it and buy a bigger property in a better location for my retirement. Okay, cool. So you decide to do an exchange. You're going to meet with a broker, you know, myself or anyone else out there in the world. And they're going to advise you on, um, before they advise you, they want to know what your goals are, right? So you want to ask yourself or ask your client, if you're a broker, you want to ask them like, what are your goals? Like, what's your ideal property you want to buy? What location do you want to buy in? What kind of return are you looking for? So after you get those questions answered and you locate exactly what kind of property you want to buy or the criteria, um, you want to, it's kind of like the chicken before the egg, right? Because mm -hmm. when you go and locate the property, like you're all, your perfect property, you can't buy it yet because you haven't sold your property. So I always tell my clients when we have your criteria, you know, let's make sure that, you know, when a property comes in the market or if we find something off market, you have the power to close on it. So what we do is we list their property right away and we tell them the listing period takes a long time because a standard transaction is 30 to 60 days. Mm -hmm. And what we do that's different than some people don't know how to do is we bill in extensions of times for our clients. So we'll give them like two 30 day extensions so that they have an extra two months to, you know, shop for their next property instead of being, you know, held to the gun at 45 days and a 30 day close. So we can, can you, can you explain that the extension yeah. again? Yeah. So before we go into contract, um, let's say, let's say you're the buyer, I'm the seller and I'm going to trade up and do an exchange into a larger asset. If you make an offer on my property, I'm going to say, Hey, thanks for the offer. You know, million bucks works great. I'll take the offer, but I'm going to, I'm going to counter you and say, or my agent will and say, Hey, I'm doing a 1031 exchange. I have to disclose this to you. So I'm going to be pressed for time. So I want, you know, at least 60 to 90 days longer escrow in order for me to do a deal with you. And then usually, I mean, it's not really a big, like buyers usually don't care. They'll say, yeah, that's fine. 30 to 60 days is fine. Extra. And then we'll go into escrow and then we'll have, then the, then the time, then the, the time actually starts. Then yeah. Then when you're, when you have a mutual agreement and you have an offer signed up with both parties, then the timeline starts. And then when you close uh, and you sell, you own the property, Ruben, and I sold, now I have 45 days to find something if I haven't found anything yet. Um, usually what I find is that most of our clients find something they want to buy before they even close, but which is fine because you can go into escrow on the property that I'm going to buy uh, when I'm already in escrow to sell my property to you because I know it's going to close. Um, you know, you've committed to the deal and I can now tell the seller of the property that I'm going to buy, hey, my property's in escrow, so I'll have money in you know ten days to wire to you to buy your property. You know what I mean? So, got it. it and just so I, I understand, dance. no, it is an interesting dance that you kind of baked in, which I really like. But just so I understand, because we're not in when attorney, uh, I don't know what the word terminology is. We have closing attorneys. We don't work with title companies. Yeah. So we don't really. I don't know if we technically open escrow. I know that's used in in those states. 
So just so I'm clear, at what point does the 1031 uh, exchange 45 day timer tick? Because I'm trying to understand the how you're buying time. You're basically disclosing that 60 day kind of buffer that you're putting in and it only comes into i guess the 45 day only kicks in what when they sign or when no uh, the, the, the 45 day <clears throat> the 45 day identification period mm -hmm. starts after the property sells like actually closes escrow mm. um so like for example okay that's that makes sense yeah so so you've you've basically bought yourself enough time to get the other deal figured out the only question because he says like chicken or the egg is what do you know do you do you kind of forecast your buying power based on the potential value that you think you're going to be able to sell it for like how do i make sure that i'm still qualified even financially do you just have to have money in the bank and or raise the capital with your partners and then also know that hey by the way you're gonna we're gonna get a large credit from the 1031 like how do you position yourself for example you have this 20 unit property that's worth a million maybe you got another million in the bank but then you're looking at a four million dollar asset like you do you, how do you position yourself and know that you know do you base it on what you have in the bank and base it on what's going to sell that last one you're going to sell for do you is it kind of just a just a, a a a gentle forecast of hey i we anticipate we're gonna sell this for this much therefore we can start looking at these type of assets like what would you advise if if you were my broker for me to be able to comfortably start looking at other properties without having sold the first one yeah so you got to know your your equity position so we got to mm -hmm. understand what your property's worth that's my job to advise you and then we have to know how much you owe on the property. So what your mortgage is, mm. and then we'll know after fees and commissions, how much equity you have to play with in order to buy the property that you're going to buy uh, for your 1031 exchange. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. And just like that, that's how we trade up. Yeah. I mean, that's like the simplest terms, of course, nothing goes perfectly, but mm. um, if, if you know what you just listened to in the podcast and you have the knowledge to yes, uh, trade, sell your property and buy a bigger one. And I highly encourage it if you do own like a smaller asset, because, you know, would you rather own 10 houses in different areas or, you know, one 10 unit complex? It's, it's a lot easier to manage when you own, you know, less locations, more units in the same location. Mm. I love that. So t tell me, what was the, you know, I have two questions. What was your beginning? What did it look like? And why did you choose to stay in San Diego? I heard you talk about landlocked also heard you talk about i heard you talk about the benefits but also heard you talk about the I, I, I don't want to call it a negative but i heard you say hey you know in order for me to get you know 100 unit that would be like a 50 million dollar property here so with is there a strategy is there a reason why is it because your business is there and it's vertically aligned and you know the market like what are some of the reasons why you decided to stay in san diego when you, some investors are usually running across to the Midwest or the Southeast, et cetera, just so we understand. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I haven't um, diversified out of state or out of area is because, you know, I'm a very active broker in this market. So we do a lot of deals and we understand exactly what values are at. And I have a good, you know, system here. So if I want to go to Phoenix, I have to restart all the systems. Like I have to get my contractor team. I have to get my new property management company. I got to you know, get a good, you know, lender or bank out there. I got to, 
um, make new broker relationships. I got, I got to kind of restart what I'm doing. And I don't think it makes sense to do that unless I'm at a higher level. Like if I can buy large properties out of state and I'm confident about that, then yes, I'm, I will eventually do that. But as of right now, I have a unique competitive advantage in my market and like the smaller, you know, quote unquote deals. So if I go to a new market where I know nobody and, um, I've never done a deal before, it's going to be, I'm going to be running in circles for a long time. So I'd rather maximize my time and take advantage of the opportunity I have here in San Diego and be really focused before I start looking into other areas. Got it. What did the first deal look like, Jason? The first deal, uh, the first deal was a duplex. Um, first deal was a duplex and it was $630,000 and it was a three bedroom, two bath house in the front with a studio in the back. It was a duplex and it had a two car garage on the back right of the property and it had a one car garage detached on the front of the property. And, um, in San Diego and California, we can add what's called accessory dwelling units, ADUs. So mm -hmm. what I was able to do was legally convert the garages into a two bedroom, one bath and a one bedroom, one bath. And I made it into a fourplex. And all in all, I spent about, you know, 400 K on the renovations and the, and the development. I was into it for like a little over a million bucks and the property appraised for $2.1 million the next year. So that was one of my best deals yet. Damn. So you started off out. So t that process, uh, where'd you get the 400 K? Did you save it up? Did you borrow it? Was, was a hard money loan? What was the process in, in getting that loan? Yeah. The money was actually directly out of my pocket. I'd saved up a good amount of money for, uh, from, from brokering. And I, I, I got a loan. So I, I put 30% down on the $630,000 as a bridge loan, short-term two-year loan, high interest rate, but they gave me, you know, okay leverage. Why it was, bridge? It was interest only because it was so messed up. Right. So a bridge <laughs> loan in the simplest terms, you get a bridge loan when the property is, you know, in shambles when it, when it's old, tired and it's not operating correctly. So that's why I got a bridge loan to lower my interest costs in, in the beginning and to put, to get more leverage. They did the, the bank did pay for some of the rehab. They paid for about 150 grand of it, but the other 250, I had, I had a front, but for someone who is watching the show and says, I don't have that much money lying around. Great. You don't have to, you can either bring in a partner that does, or you can um, find private money from other sources at a higher interest rate to cover you as well. So if you're watching the show and you're thinking, damn, how am I going to save up that much money? You don't have to, you don't need any money. If you have the right people and the right relationships, you can make a deal work and get a piece of the deal. Uh, even if uh, you're someone who's, you know, um, has no money in their bank account. I love that. Appreciate you highlighting that. And from that two unit, so I, I guess how many, what were your margins on that? I mean, you, let's do the math. You put in, you know, 30% for 630 down, you put in about 400 K in there and you came out 2.1 after, um, did you end up 1031? Did you end up selling paying capital ta gains taxes on that? What was the, what happened after with that $2.1 million valuation? What'd you do with it, Jason? Tell us what you did with it. Yeah. So that property is, um, the reason why I know the valuations cause it got appraised and it got appraised because I did a refinance. So on that property, it made more sense for me to do a cash out refinance because, um, the cash flow is really, really strong and I couldn't beat it 
um, if I bought a new property. So it just made sense to hold on to it. And um, it's brand new, you know, basically new construction. So it's very low maintenance. And I thought, why not just keep it and let it cash flow? And I pulled out most of the money that I put into it. So ended up being a really good deal. Yeah. Plus, plus re- cash out refine is a non-taxable event. So yep. you're getting all the money up front. Or I guess in your case, pulling the money out, which is, and then what did you do with that? Uh, I reinvested. I bought a Ferrari. No, I'm, I, I reinvested. <laughs> I, I, I reinvested. Oh my God, I so wish. And then you sold it. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I, I reinvested into another property, a, a fourplex down here. Yeah, no, where I was getting as you probably traded up. And then what what did, what did the trajectory look like? Fourplex and then what? Um, Yeah, like the first year I bought a lot of like two to four unit properties. And then um, something I didn't mention about the 1031 exchange is you have to hold the property for at least two years to Ooh. actually sell and not pay capital gains. So I held the properties for two years and then I sold them. And then I um, went in, into a 16 unit property a 10 unit property, an eight unit property and a couple others. So all like within like the 20 to, you know, 10 unit range. And what are the price points for those? The most expensive property I've bought um, to this day was 4.8 million. It was a 11 unit property, a block from the ocean in Pacific beach here in San Diego. You still got that? I still have it. Yeah. What's the unit mix? That one is five studios in the front with uh, private front yards, uh, pretty big size studios. And then the back has uh, two, three bedroom, three bath units with ocean views. And then it's got uh, two one bedrooms on the bottom. And then it's got, um, and it's got a two, be- and it's got a two bedroom to the, on the left side of the property. So, yeah. Do they, what's the rent for those? The studios rent for, I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy saying it out loud, but the, the studios rent for like anywhere between 25 to 2,600, the one bedrooms rent for up to 3000 and then three bedrooms rent for up to like $7,000 a month. Yeah. I mean, I, I came from New York. I'm not appalled by any means. True. Yeah. City. Yeah. You have very high prices there. Uh, but that's what's up. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if those could like, cause I, I know a lot of my guys here involved in boutique hotels, but like you're talking about front front view is that something you've ever considered at all or no um consider what again i mean i I, i'm kind of saying that without with knowing that the answer is no because you focus on what your what works but you know boutique boutique yeah boutique hotel because like you got the front yeah ocean like i don't know i haven't seen the property but it's it's it sounds like that would crush it as a boutique hotel it would crush it but um the only the only crappy part about um Airbnb and short-term rentals here in San Diego is that you now have to have a permit to run a short-term vacation rental. So unless you're like commercially zoned as a hotel, it doesn't make sense to run a property as a boutique hotel because you can't, um, mm-hmm. you can't have that many permits on an 11 unit property for yourself. So I would yeah. love to, but, um, I don't know that space too well. I know it's amazing. I have friends who do very, very, very well with short-term and midterm rentals in San Diego, but yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you know, Rich Summers? I do. Yep. Yeah. That's my guy. He was on the pod too. We connected earlier in the year. I know he's running that play heavily. And yeah. his whole thing is if you understand, you know, and a lot of our listeners are very familiar with the short term rental space because that, that's in midterm rental space because that's our, our world. But 
what's what the opportunity and the reason why I know Rich was saying when he was on this episode too is um the reason they went they were multifamily investors, but then the numbers were getting you know squeezed, and so he kind of ran you know he had some a uh, couple of Airbnbs and out in Phoenix, et cetera, so he knew the operation knew the play, but what's really interesting is like a lot of these mom and pops buildings um or even if they're zoned for hotels, they're just running things on paper. They're not optimizing with technology and these smart locks, et cetera. So if you're a seasoned Airbnb operator and you understand it's essentially plugging and playing very similar structure, not the same, but a very similar structure, right? You got your cleaners, you got their operations, you got, maybe you got someone front desk or maybe you don't and you cut, cut out the operations or at least the expenses. There's a big opportunity there for those who are not, you know, really operating their short-term rentals with the technology that they should be leveraging. And the half of these people who are operating these Airbnb, uh, these, these hotels are not even using OTAs, right? Like booking.com and Airbnb. So there's a huge opportunity right from the get-go to like turn it on and just run it. I'm not saying it's hundred percent easy, but I'm saying when you've been seasoned in the space, uh, that's, that's where the opportunity was at. So I thought, you know, I thought you might find that interesting, but yeah, just, just thought, mutual mutual connection in the space in in your neck of the woods yeah definitely yeah but you're obviously you what you're doing is working tell me what's next brother how can we tap in yeah ruben thank you so much man i, I really appreciate you having me on you're a great um interviewer and you got a great podcast here so i'm sure the listeners got a lot of value out of your show in general you got a lot of episodes so i listen to some myself they're all great um it's cool you had rich on i, I, I kind of listen to some of that episode. Um, I've, I interviewed Rich myself. He's got some cool things he's going on right now and with yeah. his boutique hotels. But yeah, for me, um, I have my own podcast too. I'd love to have you on. Uh, it's called Get Out of the System. We yes, interview um, entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs, want to get out of the system and be their own boss because, you know, W2 is where you go to die. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, so you can connect me with, with me on there or my Instagram, pretty active at uh, Jason Joseph Lee. But yeah, thanks again, Ruben. Man, absolutely, man. And go ahead and conquer the rest of your day, brother. I appreciate you coming on. And just like that experiment nation, tapping with Jason Joseph Lee, you see the link there. Just like that, we are out. Experimentation podcasting has changed the way we operate as real estate investors ourselves, and it can do the same for you. Podcasting has been the source of the masterclasses that we get thanks to the world-class real estate investors and practitioners and specialists that come into the lab from all realms, from short-term rentals to mid-term rentals to real estate syndications to even software as a service, owners, founders, entrepreneurs have helped enrich our experiments by giving us the education, helping us build a network, and lastly, and most importantly, a brand association to open up multiple doors for our respective businesses. If you understand the power that podcasting can have, and you know that you need one for your brand, please, you can rely on our team. Investedtalent.com is my team and the team that helps this podcast, The Real Estate Experiment, become the fruition each and every single week to educate my community, build relationships on the air, and continue to build our brand. If you know that you need to do the same for your brand and you haven't pulled the trigger yet, maybe because you don't know how, 
our company, investedtalent.com, does the end-to-end -end from the time that you record to the time that it is published to even repurposing content on multiple social media platforms, that's what my team can do for you. Simply go to investedtalent.com and book a discovery call to see how my team can help you launch your podcast.